Okay, so the passage I'll be speaking from today is 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll be reading from verse 10 to 17, but I'll be mostly focusing on verses 16 and 17. Find that on page 1182 in the Church Bibles. Two Timothy chapter three. I'm going to read from verse ten. You, however, and Paul is speaking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Thanks be to God for that portion of scripture. And I've entitled my talk today, Confidence in the Word of God. And what I'm going to be touching upon is a couple of doctrines that I think are just so important for today's um, church. And that is the authority of scripture. In other words, God's word is final and it is binding on us. And also the sufficiency of scripture, or in other words, God's word is enough. And this is something that's been really impressed upon my heart of late because um, I see and notice in the Christian church today a lack of confidence in the word of God. And that is disastrous. And on what basis do I say that I see a lack of confidence in the word of God? Well, I think we see it today in just the way that we try to reach the outside world from inside. So if we look at statistics, I know that these might be hyperinflated, but with the number of Christians in this country dropping from 65% around 1983, 50% in 2008, and 38% in 2018, um, it doesn't bode well for us. And when it comes to seeing our local church, you see church congregations getting smaller and smaller, and it's not comfortable feeling looking at it and furthermore you see in society whenever Jesus and the Bible are spoken about no longer is it commonplace or viewed with respect but actually it's shunned mocked and people say has no place in public life today Uh, the thing is there's nothing new about this the apostle Paul here faces similar challenges so this letter to second Timothy Paul is writing to one of his uh, protégés shall we say uh, Timothy, he's an elder in the Ephesian church, someone who's been under the teaching of Paul and has been a long-time gospel partner. 
And throughout their ministry, they've been facing various challenges to the gospel and the growth of the church. So in this passage, or in this book, we see that Paul is instructing Timothy to stand and hold firm to what he's been taught by the Apostle Paul and what he's seen in the Apostle Paul's life. And that is the true gospel and a demonstration of the gospel's power in the individual Christian's life. Um, Paul is facing serious oppositions. So although not so... Uh, not, it's explained in this letter, but you see elsewhere Paul is facing other people who claim to be genuine apostles, genuine uh, teachers of the gospel. And these are guys who are trying to win people for Christ by worldly means. What I mean by that is that they appeal to people's um, physical senses. So saying, uh, we are proper apostles because we can do signs and wonders. Our ministry is impressive because look at us. We're not getting thrown into prison. We're not looking weak. We look strong. And therefore, this is our way of saying this is the true Christianity. This is the kind of thing Paul has to face. And actually, we can see a lot of similarities between what the challenges the Apostle Paul faces in his time with what we face today. A lot of people will purport themselves to be genuine ministers of the gospel. And what they'll say is, our Christianity works because look at us. We look so impressive. Our church is massive. Look how impressive our services are. Look how great our music is. And it can be very tempting to get alert into that. And especially with the number of well, our mission to save as many people as possible through the gospel. Um, it's very easy to resort to those means. But that's not what the Bible has prescribed for us. So I've told you about the statistics of the number of Christians in this country. And one suspects they're highly uh, inflated. And any born-again believer is incredibly distressed with the figures so even if we take 38% in 2018, although one suspects the number of true Christians in this country is far slower than that, if we believe the Bible's teaching that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one goes to the Father except by him, and also the Apostles' teaching when Peter says there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved in Acts 4.12, then the conclusion is, a huge number of people in this country, millions, if not tens of millions, are heading towards hell. And that's very sobering. And so any born-again Christian is saying, we've got to do something. People have got to believe in Christ. Because the Bible's teaching is very clear. The only way to be saved from hell, from our sins, is by faith in Jesus Christ. And the question is, how do churches go about this? How do people, how do professing Christians try to get people to believe in Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, very often, speaking simply and teaching faithfully from the word of God is well down on people's priority list in reaching the lost. Some Christians may offer a softer gospel, trying to avoid the hard teachings of the gospel, such as sin, that we're all sinners, we've all broken God's law, we're all rebels in our heart against God. Uh, not teaching about judgment, that when we die, there will be an accounting of our lives before God. We'll meet God one day. He'll be sat on his throne. The books of our life will be opened. And he will judge us according to that. And then ultimately, if we have not had our sins forgiven, we are off to hell forever. And so this is incredibly offensive to non-Christians. In fact, sometimes to us as well as Christians. And so people think, in order to get people to believe in Jesus we must not say anything about this in order not to turn, turn away them from believing in Jesus. 
Now, this is fundamentally weak and dishonest and is not the way to go to get people to believe in Jesus Christ. Some other Christians may appeal to people's felt needs and be very busy in social action. And let me say from the off, this is a good thing. But when there's so much attention being focused on good community work, such as food banks, cleaning up the streets, um, volunteering in local charity sectors, these are good things. But what often happens is that they do not um, focus on preaching the gospel. And although you've helped people in a way, you've not addressed the fundamental need of being reconciled to God through the gospel. And so that's another technique that people use, which is not, which is not helping people. Another technique that Christians may employ is to shape Christian worship and the way the church is done to fit the people who are not professing faith in Jesus Christ. So these are comfortable seats, an attractive building, wonderful music, uh, lights, smokes, this environment to attract this entertainment field to get people to come in. Oh, come to church because it's a wonderful time and you'll experience some wonderful things. And this is the technique that some Christians use to get people to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you may know this as like the seeker-sensitive movement, that we've got to make church as accommodating to the non-Christian as possible so that they will come, so that they will believe in Jesus Christ. And this is, this is appealing and putting the emphasis on, dare I say, worldly means to get people saved. And lest I just focus on evangelism when it comes to the word of God, we also see a lack of confidence in the word of God in our Christian living. So as, our, as we are progressively trying to get to be more Christ-like in our sanctification, we'll do many things to defeat sin. So things like accountability partners, um, putting rules and uh, regulations on our lives, I'm not going to do this after this time, that after that time, all for the sake of a very good cause of putting to death sin. But how highly do we actually value simple meditation on the word of God and praying to God to apply it to our lives? I'm not convinced it's that high. And it's my contention to you this evening that if the church is to get back to her former glory and see millions converted to Christ, and for us as individual Christians to experience that fullness of the Christian life, we must have full confidence in the word of God to achieve this. And if we do, God willing, we'll see many people converted to Christ, a revival in this country that we could scarcely believe, and a deep sense of joy and presence of the Lord, all to the glory of God alone. So that's an introduction. I've split this confidence in the word of God into four sections. First section, the authority of scripture. Second one, the sufficiency of scripture. Third, the purpose of scripture. And fourth, the need of the Holy Spirit. I'm mainly going to be focusing on the first two, the authority and the sufficiency of scripture, but the last two is something I think we really need to be reminded of. So first, the authority of scripture. And point A of this is scripture is God's word. And it's something that we've probably heard hundreds of times, that the Bible is God's word. But it's so significant because when you understand what that means, it should really change your mind to how you view the Bible. So our God is a communicating God. He communicates with his people because that's how any relationship happens. And because Christianity is a relationship religion, that is, we have a relationship with our living God, our Heavenly Father, 
Communication is absolutely necessary. God communicates with us, and in order to communicate, we need words. And God's word is the Bible, the scriptures. We communicate back to God through our words in prayer. But it's that simple dynamic which a Christian enjoys relationship with God. God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. We speak to God back in prayer. And if that's the case, we should be very grateful that God has given us his word. Because if not, God has not spoken to us. We know nothing from the mouth of God. But, mercifully, he has given us his word. And therefore, we should be ever grateful that God has given us his word. So God has given us the Bible, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. However, it's pretty obvious today, if you ask a lot of people, many people are not convinced that the Bible is God's word. Uh, This suspicion is nothing new, and it began in the garden. It's Genesis 3, and Satan's clever devices into tricking Adam and Eve that God's word is either not to be relied upon or not to be trusted. And my plea to you is, don't follow suit. So here are some reasons why we can believe that the Bible is God's word. Uh, First, but not the most compelling, is the external evidence that the Bible is God's word. God has blessed us in history with many things that point to the reliability and the truthfulness of God's word. So I think Paul could do a better job than me talking about historical reliability of the Bible, but here's just some excerpts. So our New Testament was written in the first century, but those documents of the first century do not last 2,000 years. But the way that God has continuously made sure that New Testament writings exist is that people copy it, and we call that manuscripts. So over time, as people wanted more access to the scriptures, they'd write more and more manuscripts, and the more manuscripts you have, the better idea of what you have, the better idea you have of what was said in the originals. Now, God has blessed us with an incredible amount of manuscripts, something that's unparalleled in the ancient world, something like 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And that is far and above anything else in ancient history. We can be most sure of anything in the ancient history of Jesus and his life than anything else. And God has blessed us incredibly with that. And then there's the discovery of the Qumran scrolls in 1946, I believe. Um, A Bedouin monk threw a rock into a cliff, smashed some bottles, and lo and behold, he found a set of copy of the Old Testament. And these are dated to around 100 BC, but the point is, they were the same as what Moses and the Old Testament prophets and writers of the scriptures said. So we can have confidence that God has been very good at preserving his word throughout the centuries. And so we can view the Bible as a reliable historical document. There is very good evidence why you can trust the Bible as God's word. Uh, Some other things are archaeological findings. We see things written in the scriptures backed up by archaeological findings. The Gospel of John talks about the pool of Bethesda. wasn't found until of last century, and then they uncovered it. And as time goes on and more archaeological findings happen, you find more and more evidence that corroborates with the truth of the Bible. So that's external evidence that the Bible is God's word. Now, the internal evidence that the Bible is God's word. And here we see some very important people say the, the, the truthfulness of the Bible. So 
we begin with no other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus regarded the scripture as God's word. So when he was tempted by Satan in the desert in Matthew 4, Satan tempted Jesus to turn a stone into a piece of bread. Now, Jesus was fasting for 40 days, incredibly hungry, because he has a human nature. And Satan says, if you really are the son of God, you will turn this stone into a piece of bread. And Jesus quotes back to Satan, um, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every ma- word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, that's back in Deuteronomy. And what Jesus is saying there is actually, he, every single person is to be living by the words of Scripture, everything that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus quotes that, affirming that the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, is from the mouth of God, is Scripture. So that's Jesus saying Scripture is God's word. And if that's not enough, even the Apostle Paul, Jesus picked him to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And we can owe a lot of thanks to the Apostle Paul for the gospel reaching Great Britain. And he affirmed the supernatural source of the scriptures. We just read it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul is in no shadow of a doubt of his mind that scripture comes from God's mouth. And if that wasn't enough, the apostle Simon Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, says the scriptures are from God. The Holy Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 to 21. But the most convincing thing for the Christian that the Bible is God's word is what we call the self-authentication of the scripture. The Bible proves itself. When a Holy Spirit indwelt Christian reads the Holy Spirit-inspired words, the Holy Spirit tells and convinces the Christian that the Bible is absolutely true. You have no doubt in your mind, this is the word of God. That's the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, how he convinces and reassures the Christian that the Bible is God's word. So those are just three arguments for why Christians can regard the Bible as God's word. And if that wasn't enough, I think it's a good time to teach um, the doctrines of the nature of Scripture and actually one of the Trinity. First, the nature of the Scripture. And I say this because a lot of people say, well, the Bible was just written by men, 2,000 years old, it's going to be faulty, it's going to have no relevance to us today, why should we read it? And it's absolutely true, scripture is very clear that it was written by ordinary, fallible men. So, Paul was an ordinary man, Simon Peter was an ordinary man, and these are guys who existed in history, they witnessed events, wrote about them, however, over their lifetime, they sinned, they had limited and sometimes erroneous memories, and obviously committed spelling mistakes sometimes in their life. question is, does that mean the scriptures are fallible because it was written by fallible men? Not at all. And this is why it's so important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit also wrote the Bible. The relationship between the Holy Spirit and men in writing the Bible is one of a mystery. Um, there are a few mysteries in Christianity, such as how can, God, how can Christ be truly man and truly God. It's, it boggles the mind. But another one of those mysteries is how can scripture be written by God, the Holy Spirit, and also be written by man? But that's what scripture says. And why it's so important to affirm that the Holy Spirit wrote the words of scripture is because of who the Holy Spirit is. And just to touch upon the doctrine of the Trinity, um, Poplar is unashamedly a Trinitarian church. And what the Trinity is, is that we 
The Bible says that there is only one God. Jesus says it's very clear, the Lord is one. But that the Godhead exists in three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each one of them has a divine nature. So the Father has a divine nature. Jesus, the Son of God, has a divine nature. The Holy Spirit is God and has a divine nature. And why that's important is that the divine nature means that they are all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-truthful. So, if the Holy Spirit is God, and he's incapable of lying, and is powerful enough to prevent the apostles from erring as they wrote scripture, then we can have full confidence that what the apostles wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is absolutely true and is the word of God. Uh, this Now moving to the next point on the talk is... Scripture is God's word, but next thing is God's word is final. A lot of people ask, so what if the Bible is God's word? Why is that significant to me? And for that, we need to be reminded of who God is. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And what that means is God created everything, including you and me. And if he made you and me, he has authority over you and me and gets to say and command us. And so scripture is God's word and God is our maker and our judge. His word is final. He is the holy God, perfectly pure, moral, to whom everyone must answer and give an account of their lives. He is the all-wise God who knows everything and knows what's best for us. This is the God who's behind the scriptures and who reveals himself through the scriptures and so if he lays down the law in scripture, we must listen to what he says and humble ourselves at his word. There's a very famous verse in Isaiah 66, verse 2, where it says, The Lord is looking for those who tremble at his word. And if we are to be truly respectful and worship God as he is, we must humble ourselves before him and his word, knowing who he is. He is God, the Almighty, the Holy, the Supreme Judge of all the earth. And it's an, it's an unspeakably arrogant thing to think that we know better than God and to stand in opposition to his word. So if you discuss with people something that God's, God said in his word, which is quite controversial, you'll get them saying, well, no, I know better. This is wrong. Well, in our, in our society today, we, this, is why we, this is what we do. And the Bible is backward and outdated. That's, that's an incredibly arrogant thing to say. You don't know better than God, and God has authority over you. I guess other domains of authority that challenge God's word is there's a very, uh, there's an unknown, or quite a rare, um, t- I don't know, how, the, the device that people use to ex- ex- explain all the dimensions of authority that people appeal to when it comes to living, living their life. I call it the Bree diagram. People call it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But basically, it splits... Um, people's sphere of authority. So I call it BRI because that's the acronym. B for Bible, R for reason, I for institution, and E for experience. And when you speak to people, people will appeal to one of these four domains as the final authority behind their decision. So for Christians, it should always be the Bible. The Bible is the final authority. This is what God's word says, and that's what goes. Reason is when people say, well, that doesn't make sense to me, and I'm going to only believe and live by what, what's right by me. And if anything else offends that, 
I'm going to ignore it because my reason is the most important thing. Institution, so organizations like the, the church, um, medical authorities, whatever, institutions like a body, an organization that makes authoritative statements. And E is experience, or what feels right. So often the word of God is under attack by these three other domains. So reason. Um, there was a recent article I read about John Piper, who's a, who's a quite a well-known Bible teacher. And I was absolutely appalled because a lot of people were getting so angry at him because he said he'd discipline people in his church who would marry a non-Christian. And many of the comments were saying, well, John Piper is wrong because I know plenty of Christians who have married non-Christians who have converted their non-Christian spouses to Christianity. But the point is, the Bible says, and Henry preached on it just a few weeks ago, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Now, that's unbelievably clear in saying, do not marry a non-Christian if you are a Christian. And here, John Piper is just laying down the law. And then people say, well, I know better because this makes sense to me. Uh, If you are a Christian and you believe in the authority of the Bible, what you think has to come under what God said. If God has said, do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers, that is final. And what you think should be submitted under that. I, institution. A classic one is the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches that actually the church has the same authority as the scriptures when it comes to matter of conduct. So there's something called ex cathedra. When the Pope sits on his chair and makes a decree, that is as binding and authoritative on Catholics as the Bible. And this is one of the things that really set forth the Reformation because the Pope is not infallible. He's a regular man like you and me, a sinner. And he's in as much need of salvation by Jesus as you and I. And the, the, the belief that he is as powerful as God, as authoritative of God, to make commands like God, binding on his people, is wrong. And so, classically, this claim to clash with the main Protestant um, contention that to get right with God is basically only by belief in Jesus Christ. Now, the, churches, the Catholic Church has taught, well, actually, you need more than that. You need to participate in the sacraments, the Mass, this, to infuse your righteousness. And this is why the Church, this is why the Reformation happened, because people noticed that the Bible teaches that you're only right with God by believing in Jesus Christ, nothing else. And so we have the Bible's teaching and the institution's teaching clashing to each other. Any Christian needs to put the Bible's teaching above institution. It does not matter what the church says, or a pastor for for that matter of fact. And even what I say, if what I say is not according to the Bible, you should ignore what I say and listen to what the Bible says, because that's the final authority. Then E, experience or it feels good, or if, if, if it's, it's right to me. Um, I guess... Uh, for example, people are... Um, well, people are uncomfortable uh, with the fact that there is a hell, and that ultimately people will go there. And people's experience is, well, I, I, I feel that God is love. And that if a loving God will never send anyone to hell. But Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 41, he says that those on my left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. 
And he says that towards people who profess themselves to be Christians, but didn't lift a finger up to help fellow Christians who are in need. This is the Bible and our Lord's teaching, and you can't let your experience override that. So the Bible is our authority, and we need to submit everything else under that as Christians. Okay, so that's the authority of the scripture. I want to move on to now, which something that I think is um, going to be very salient for our society today, and that's the sufficiency of scripture. Long word, but basically what that means is God's word is enough. And this is one of the most important doctrines that the modern church can take heed of today. So the sufficiency of scripture teaches that everything we need, everything that we need to be saved and to grow as Christians to be more Christ-like. So in in short, justification and sanctification, being right with God and growing to be more like Jesus, is found within the Bible. And there is no special knowledge or special gift that you need outside the Bible to be saved or to grow as a Christian because God has given you everything that you will ever need the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit-inspired Christian uh, scriptures to achieve that aim. The scriptures are enough to guide you to know what to believe, matters of faith, and how you should live, matters of conduct. You just need to know what is written in the Bible and understand it rightly and apply it well by the Spirit's grace. And we get this doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture from this text. Uh, This is why I picked it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, so useful for teaching. So that's what what should we believe, doctrine. Reproof, so correcting us when we go wrong. For correction, if we stray in the way we live our lives. And for training in righteousness, helping us to live well. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And notice that every That means that God has blessed us with the scriptures and it's good enough for us to do everything that God wants us to do, which is good. Um, When our Lord Jesus was debating the Pharisees and the Sadducees on matters of faith and what to believe, for example, is it right to heal on the Sabbath or is there going to be a resurrection of the body? How did he settle that debate He settled it by quoting the Old Testament scripture. He didn't settle it by appealing to some special knowledge or special revelation, but expounded on what had already been revealed in the scriptures. So we can learn a lot from this as modern-day Christians. When it comes to evangelism and apologetics or defending the faith from those who challenge it, you don't need to look beyond the Bible and have a PhD in physics in order to win a scientist for the Lord. You just need to be an spirit-indwelt Christian and know the scriptures, and use it well. And then again, looking back on Paul's situation today, you see people with this air of external gusto. So these are people who are not uh, going by the scriptures, but instead are using other means to try and win people for Christ. So they have an external gusto, impressing, like looking impressive to the world. Uh, we see this in actually a bit earlier in the chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. Uh, I will probably read from verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness 
but denying its power. So Paul is saying that actually this is what people try to represent Christ but deny the prescribed means that God has used to get people to Christ, i.e. the Bible. This is what they're really like. And so uh, Paul uh, exposes them for their hypocrisy and says that the ministry won't last long. Uh, These are people who just don't rely on the word of God to get the job done. So I want to say, when it comes to the Christian life, whether it's evangelism or apologetics or just Christian living, don't be ashamed or feel inferior to someone who asks you how your walk with the Lord is. And you simply say, well, I'm reading my Bible every day and praying. That's enough. I think so many churches and Christians depart from the Bible as a centerpiece of their lives. Church services seeking for special experiences, uh, Christians looking for special experiences, and it's this doctrine that is so crucial in getting us back on track in using God's prescribed means of us being sustained in our Christian lives. Experience alone will not sustain us because no Christian has wonderful experiences 24-7 all the time. There are times where you'll feel low and feel that God is not with you. And it's that time where we need something from God which is constant, unchanging, something we can rely on all the time and have access to all the time, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And that, my friends, is God's kindness in giving us the scriptures The words and truths of scriptures remain the same whether we're young or old, male or female, married or single, happy or sad, employed or unemployed. They will be true no matter what situation you find yourself in. Uh, Such a shame that so many Christians today seek for special experiences in their attempt to seek God. They say they feel close to God when in a certain place or when a certain song is playing. And you, you'd expect this from, from the pagan world, which is groping in the dark for God. They don't know who God is. They're trying to grasp where he is. So they go to all sorts of places, try to experience all sorts of things in the attempt to know God. But you shouldn't expect this from a Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, has had their mind renewed and lightened by the Holy Spirit, and has been given the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. Uh, just a word in passing, I, I know that uh, I've downplayed experience through this, but I do have to warn myself and you guys that you should be, we should be careful about not downplaying the role of emotions and feelings in the Christian experience too much. So experiences of joy and emotion should always come after a spiritual truth. God has said something wonderful in his word, and then it brings you great joy and you feel wonderful. That's the correct relationship of scripture and experience. It's not true that Christianity is only about doctrinal beliefs. So this is what the Bible says, I believe it, and then you should ignore all your feelings and emotions. That's not Christianity. The Bible says we should be joyous in the Lord and delight in him. Jesus should make us feel so happy. But it should never, or emotion should never be untethered from scripture because then 
we are on dangerous ground and delighting in something that we think God is, but has no basis in scripture, and therefore very possibly wrong. That's potentially idolatrous, because we're delighting in a God that we've made in our own image, which is not the God of scripture. That's why your joy and your emotion should always be tethered to scriptural truths. Another point I need to address is, some say that if you don't speak in tongues, prophecies, then you're not Christian, or you're less of a Christian than those who do. And we have to call that out as utterly wrong and completely contradictory to what the Bible says. Because the Bible says that we are Christians by the grace of God alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and not by any work, which includes, matter-of-factly, speaking in tongues or prophesying. And I do think I have to say um, there is this wonderful equality of status in the kingdom of God. So in Galatians 3 verse 28, Paul is dealing with um, people who set themselves above others. We have the, old te- the new church had this problem about Jewish Christians thinking themselves to be more privileged than the Gentile Christians. And the point of that letter is actually in the gospel, which is by faithful and grace alone, you have this immense equality in the kingdom of God. A Gentile Christian is just as valued by God as a Jewish Christian. And the idea that you're now starting to set up hierarchies between Christians in the church is wrong and completely against the gospel. Uh, This is a point in passing, but I guess just what I've said, it's important to say that when it comes to speaking in tongues and prophesying, Christians will hold differing views on this. And um, there are some Christians who believe that when the apostles died and the last book in the Bible was written and finished, the book of Revelation, that certain gifts such as speaking tongues, prophesying, healing, stopped. And they're classically called the cessationists. Others hold that gifts continue today and still operative in the church. They're called continuationalists. I think it's a great testimony to Poplar, God's work here at Poplar Baptist Church, that although there are people in this church who have differing views, we, have, we, we dwell together quite closely. We have a good fellowship with each other. That's fantastic. But I do say it is quite sad that some churches have divided and had this sourness of relationship between each other because they disagree on this. And this is something that I feel very strongly about, that this should never happen, this sourness in relationships between Christians, especially on this point. Um, and it grieves the spirit, because I say this, um, cessationists should not simply dismiss those of a continuationist persuasion as crazy, immature fanatics. But at the same time, continuationists should not look with contempt and rail against their cessationist brothers in Christ as not being spiritual. I think that's important, because it's the Holy Spirit who makes someone a Christian, and he lives in every believer, whether cessationist or continuationist alike. I think that's important to say. Uh, Moving on, another place where the sufficiency of Scripture is so important is when you're encouraging, edifying, or building up, or correcting a fellow Christian. So... Those of us who are Christians and speaking to another Christian, don't be afraid of getting the Bible into the conversation. If the Bible is enough for every good work, cut the chase and use the means that God has given you to help your brother in need. Use scripture in your conversation. And for those who are receiving the scriptural edification or encouragement, you shouldn't feel angry or hostile to a Christian who tells you or speaks to you scripture, because it will be enough. 
or by the Spirit's aid to help you overcome whatever situation you are in. And we're commanding Scripture to do this. Ephesians 5 is supposed to speak to us, speak to each other, teaching each other Scripture. Colossians 3, teaching Scripture to each other. So if you find a fellow Christian who's anxious, don't be afraid to quote Matthew 6, where Jesus says, do not worry, because God has a providential care over you. Do not be afraid to say to a depressed person, the Lord is our strength. There's so many parts in the Psalms say that. Or someone who's struggling in their marriage. You've got Genesis, Proverbs, Song of Songs, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. There's just so much in the Bible. Why would you look anywhere else? I think people too easily dismiss or even get angry at the wondrous truths of Scripture when spoken to their lives because it feels like they're trivializing the, th- the challenge in their life. If, for example, if someone's really nervous or anxious and you say, oh, don't worry, they say, why? You're not listening to me properly. Actually, I understand that people might feel like their challenges are being trivialized if you're a an person of an anxious predisposition. But how about the truth that actually the troubles in your life really are trivial compared to the goodness and the power of God and the truths that are in Scripture? Well, Paul had the audacity to call the trials in his life and they were severe, and he called them as light, momentary afflictions. It's because he had an eternal, scriptural perspective on life. I have to thank David Randall when I come to him feeling anxious, because uh, things like, I'm so nervous because my exams are coming, or I need this, or I need that. And David, in his beautiful way, just says, well, the Lord will provide. And it's, 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 part of you just wants to be annoyed. You're not taking my worries seriously enough. Actually, that is the sufficiency of scripture in action there. That's exactly what I need to hear. That word is enough to make me overcome the situation. Because if the Lord is my provider, I don't need to worry about what I need to have because God will give it to me. And so what we need to hear in our time of difficulty, most of all, is God's word and his specific truth into our situation. Because of the sufficiency of scripture, and because it is enough to get us over that line. So that was God's word is enough. But I also want to back that up by saying God's word is glorious. So this is a counterpart I think is absolutely necessary to say. Because you can say God's word is enough. And still not be excited about God's word. But when you understand that God's word is glorious. Then scripture is absolutely delightful. So God's word is glorious because first God's word is powerful. When Paul, I asked Paul to quote Psalm 19 because there the psalmist splits that psalm into two. First, he's admiring creation, but the second half of that psalm, he's saying that the word of God is even more glorious and spectacular than creation. I don't know if you guys have ever watched a TV series by Professor Brian Cox and he looks at cosmology. A lot of people who do are simply amazed at space, stars in the sky the supernova, stars exploding. It's just really beautiful. And you, as a Christian, if you're a Christian here, you are at an unspeakable advantage because you know how that space, how that beauty was created. In Genesis 1, it says, And God said, let there be light. Day 4, And God said, let there be suns, stars, moons. The thing you're amazed at in space, in the universe, the beautiful stars, they came from the word of God. And God said... If you're saying, wow, 
to the beautiful stars and the sun and the moon and the Milky Way. And you should say even greater wow at the word of God which made that come into being. That's creation. And that's from God's word. And even more so than new creation, a great display of God's power. I think all of us have experienced grief or pain when we think of people we love dearly or close friends who are simply not believers. And you tried everything you can to get them to believe. You prayed for them. You tried to invite them to church. You tried to have conversations with them. And years and years pass by and they never come to faith. And on suddenly, all of a sudden, they come interested and get born again. What you thought was impossible, that they, after years of trying to witness to them, trying to get them to faith in Jesus Christ, and it hasn't worked. God, in his own time, if that's his will, will cause that person to be born again. And we're told in the scriptures about how someone comes to faith in Jesus. In Romans 10, it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. As someone hears the word of God, they come to faith. And you see something that you thought was impossible. A spiritually dead sinner, in utter rebellion against God, comes alive to God. We don't do a good job of saying how miraculous this is. It is the biggest miracle on this earth that any sin-hardened dead sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ. You have no idea how impossible that is. You try your best. You simply will not convert them. It's only by the massive power of God's word that someone has come to, come to faith in Jesus. And that's new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And so if, you're, if, if you really understand how powerful and magnificent it is to get a, someone to believe in Christ, you should say, wow, to God's word. It is so powerful. More than just God's word is powerful, God's word is beautiful. <clears throat> Sorry. And in Psalm 119, verse 97, the psalmist says something I just love to say sometimes. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Just when you think about the beauty of God's scripture, and when it hits the spot at the right time, you just have this sense of, oh, that's beautiful. God's word is fantastic. It's just what I needed. It's, this is the beauty of God's word. Um, I think I said it in open time before, but a couple of years ago, I was going through a very difficult time emotionally. I was feeling awful, and there was a time where I I thought about dropping out of my degree because I couldn't cope. But then God spoke a word in his time. It's 2 Corinthians 1, and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our time of affliction that we may be able to comfort others. And that was just so beautiful to me because it showed God's caring, comforting nature. God's word is beautiful. And a very other touching example of the beauty of God's word is a friend who's unfortunately passed away. And he's be, he was ill for quite a long time. And during the last moments of, or last years of his life, he was thinking about um, starting a case because he felt like he was duped into buying a knowingly faulty car. And he was so disappointed because no one was supporting him. It's one of the most horrific feelings, just going through something on your own and everyone else departing from you. But then he said the thing that encouraged him was what it said in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 17. And this context is Paul when he was trying to preach the gospel for the first time. Everyone just fled from him. And that's the worst thing ever, when you're trying to do something hard and all your support and all the people behind you just flee and go. That's incredibly demoralizing. 
But then Paul was strengthened by this. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. Back in that time, Paul was strengthened by the Lord, even though everyone else fled. And I know it's not exactly the same context, but my friend took great encouragement that despite everyone else fleeing from him, in his time of difficulty and need, the Lord was with him. And it was beautiful for him, and it was beautiful to me. So God's word is beautiful. Okay, so just a little uh, last two points. So the purpose of scripture. So I've said the authority of scripture, God's word's final. The sufficiency of scripture, God's word is enough. And the last two points is the purpose of scripture. Because I think I'd be doing you a disservice if I just tell you that God's word is enough, but sorry, don't tell you what is the point of all scripture. And the point of scripture is that it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is one flowing narrative about how our gracious God has saved us. He made us, he made us good, we rebelled and sinned against him and were destined for death. And the story of the Bible in redemptive history is how God is working, planning to save us from our sins. In the Old Testament, he sent types, he sent prophets, he, sent, he set up systems that all foreshadowed what Jesus was to do for us 2,000 years ago. And every aspect of the scriptures, whether it's through types, history, um, prophetic writings, and ultimately the Lord Jesus, it all points to that. The gospel is woven throughout all scripture. That is the purpose of scripture. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, how he has saved his people from their sins. And so we need to bear this in mind as we read scripture. That is the for us, that is the emphasis on what the Bible is. Whenever you read the Bible, bear in mind that that is what it's ultimately pointing towards. Uh, last point of this one is the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Because of all I've said, that the scriptures are enough. Um, they point to the Lord Jesus. Um, there is a serious danger I want all of us to avoid, and that is pure reliance on your own intellect. Just reading the Bible and thinking you can get the message by your own brain power, your own thinking, without any reliance on the Holy Spirit. Because it's an incredibly arrogant thing to open up the scriptures without asking for God's help to understand it. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, um, he searched the scriptures, and I'm paraphrasing, but you missed the whole point. Now these guys were the most diligent, learned studiers of the scriptures. And yet Jesus says... You missed the point. How can that be? These guys who spent the most time in the Bible, most brain power in the Bible, and yet they missed the most important thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Well, it's because they did not have the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit to make sense of the word. What's contained in Scripture are deep, profound, eternal spiritual truths that by pure intellect, no one will ever understand. Uh, truths in scripture and the person of Jesus is only spiritually discerned we read it earlier by Paul 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of this world just cannot comprehend in fact it thinks it's folly stupidity things that God calls wise the idea that Jesus Christ has is God and has to become a man to die for our sins you ask most people out there they think that's sheer folly and as they read it through the word they'll never understand it's because the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit needs to be there to make sense of that word and so any time you are opening the Bible, 
you need to desperately ask the Spirit to help you to understand it. Okay, so that's point four. I'm just going to close with some points of application. So, given the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, what now? I think thirst has always been said by Henry in popular, but it's this. It's, you need to believe in Jesus. Um, reading and knowing the Scriptures will do you no ultimate good. Ultimate, I say, unless you believe in the Lord Jesus to save you from your sins. And actually, if you know the Scriptures but don't believe in Jesus... It actually intensifies your guilt because you know your guilt. You know that the Bible says you're a sinner. You know the way of salvation, that Jesus is the one who can save you from your sins. And yet you reject that. That is a worse crime in the eyes of God than someone who has never heard of Jesus but still sins. So, you need to believe in Jesus first up. But blessedly, when you believe in Jesus, you're given the Holy Spirit. And when you're given the Holy Spirit, it's point two, you need to believe in the Scriptures can't come to the scriptures with an attitude of distrust or I don't believe that this is the word of God. You can't come with an attitude of hostility. I think the Bible is wrong. You can't come to it like that. Or contempt. Or the Bible doesn't agree with me on this so I'm just going to not agree with the Bible. You cannot have that attitude. You need to believe in the scripture as God's word. Point three. Have a high view of the scriptures. And what I mean by that is see it as high as God's and see it as important as God sees it. You've got to prioritise reading scriptures in the day. You've got time for breakfast. You've got time for reading scriptures. You, you can't neglect reading scriptures if you are to be sustained as a Christian. Do not have an attitude of thinking that the Bible is only one way of knowing God. It is God's main way of you knowing him. That's why you, if you really care about knowing God, that has to be your priority, getting in the scriptures, because that is God's primary way of making himself known to you. So get into it. And then another way you can have a high view of the scriptures is champion and look forward and pay attention to the reading and the teaching of the word of God in church services and Bible studies. That is to be the chief aim of why you come to church services and meetings of Christians, because the word of God is taught well. Fourth point of application, crave the scriptures have a keen desire to read them. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Paul is writing to Christians spread out throughout the land of Asia, and he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. He's talking to very baby Christians, but his command, his urging of the baby Christians is it's time to grow up. Just like babies who wail and make a misery out of the mother and parents' life because they're not being fed, you need to have that desire to get into the Word of God. I am not going to be satisfied unless I get fed from the Word of God. I need to have it. And that is to be the heart desire of every Christian. I need the Word of God, and I'm not going to go to bed satisfied unless I have it. So have this craving of the Scriptures. Five... Learn how to read the Bible. This is something that's been revealed to me really recently because I'm really sad because people have said, I would like to read the Bible, but I just don't know how to do it. And very often people will just say, I'm just going to open up a random page in the Bible and then read a particular verse. And I appreciate the effort, but that is not the way to read the Bible. God is a God of logic and order, and he's wrote the Bible in a structured and systematic way. And if we're to understand and fully appreciate the riches of Scripture, 
we need to read in that same systematic way, knowing what God wants us to know. Uh, why is this verse here followed by that verse there? And why is Paul mentioning these words so many times? There's a logical order and a way to read the Bible. And if you're saying, well, how do I begin to learn to read the Bible? Well, very kindly, we have elders in this church, like Henry, is more than happy, and he runs sometimes Thursday classes about how to read the Bible. So make full use of those resources. Ask Henry. I'm sure he'd be more than happy. Henry, I'd love to read the Bible. Please, can you teach me? Or even myself or Ed. I'm sure us guys are more than happy to help you read the Bible. One-to-one discipleship of an older or more mature Christian. People who have read the Bible before and know how to go through it. If you're really serious about it, just ask someone who's read the Bible before and go through the Bible together. You'll learn. And the last point is depend and rely on the Holy Spirit every time you open the Bible so that you know what it says and know how to apply it to your life. So, and that will be my last point of application.